Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. This is Jeremy Bean here, and my fellow doubtcasters, Luke, Dave, and Justin, will not be joining me today because this is a special episode devoted entirely to debunking an argument made by Dinesh D'Souza, a Christian apologist and also a popular conservative writer. We're going to be challenging D'Souza's arguments that he made in a recent debate against Susan Jacoby. The debate was over whether or not Christianity has been good for American politics, um, what role does religion play in the public sphere. I attended this debate with Ed Brayton, author of Dispatches from the Culture Wars and host of Culture Wars Radio, and both of us were quite bothered by many of the arguments that Dinesh D'Souza made that we we considered to be loaded with logical fallacies and historical inaccuracies. And so we wanted to devote some time on Ed's program to reviewing and challenging D'Souza's claims. But I thought Reasonable Doubts listeners would definitely enjoy our analysis of the debate as well. And so I'm going to share that with you today. Real quickly, I just want to mention that you can find a link to video of the entire debate at doubtcast.org. And also, we're going to be playing numerous clips from this debate. I just want to add a little disclaimer that uh, sometimes certain things have been cut out of these audio clips or the order of certain things that were said has been shuffled around to make it easier to present. But I've made an effort to make sure that this has not altered or in any way taken out of context any important arguments made by either side. So I hope you find the discussion enlightening, and we'll be back with another regular episode of Reasonable Doubts very soon. Welcome back to Culture Wars Radio. Uh, this is kind of exciting for me because uh, my next guest is, is a good friend and was the co-host and producer of my old radio show, Declaring Independence. Jeremy Behan is one of the hosts of the Reasonable Doubts podcast, uh, and it's great to be back on the air with him again for the first time in more than a year. Jeremy, welcome to Culture Wars Radio. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be here, and um, I'm excited to get a chance to tear into Mr. D'Souza. <laughs> yeah, so last week there was a debate here in Grand Rapids between uh, Dinesh D'Souza and Susan Jacoby on the question of whether Christianity was good for American politics. Uh, and afterwards we sort of stood in the lobby. It was held at Fountain Street Church here, mm-hmm. which is this amazing old church. Um, and afterwards you and I stand, stood in the lobby sort of being mutually frustrated. Oh, oh. You were seething. You were, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, the thing is, and I wrote this on, on Facebook afterwards, I went into this thing with a really low bar for D'Souza. I went into it thinking <laughs> he is very, very dishonest. It, even with that really low bar, he managed to limbo under it. <laughs> it he was far worse than I imagined he would be. 
And here's the thing. This is a really smart guy. Oh, this yeah. He's a very intelligent man. This is a very well-educated man. And he's very and he eloquent. presents himself as very reasonable a- as well. Absolutely. And I think that makes it even more frustrating to me because so many times he said something that I just sort of almost – I wanted to jump out of my seat and go, wait a minute. He is the king of straw man arguments, of equivocations, of selecting evidence, and he's such a good example of a sophist, you know, in the negative sense of the word, that that person who's really just an intellect for hire, and it doesn't matter how he gets to his conclusion. He'll do whatever nasty trick in the book is available to him to get there. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and as I as I wrote afterwards, it was interesting to me that both he was dishonest both in terms of his the premises, that the factual claims he was making and the logical conclusions he was drawing from them. That in both it was sort of a walking logical fallacy. Yeah. In this whole thing. And unfortunately, I mean Susan Jacoby, very very smart woman, very well educated woman, very good writer. She wasn't prepared for him specifically. Even good debaters are thrown for a loop Yeah, when they face uh, people who are not using good intellectual standards, who are actually using trickery in their arguments. This is why it's so difficult to debate, you know, like take Kent Hovind, for example, the mm-hmm. young earth creationist, I mean, who you know has been in hundreds of debates and all this. The reason it's so difficult to, quote unquote, beat them in a debate uh, is because they, it's it's almost like a it's almost like a a cannon shooting nonsense. <laughs> yeah. uh, only it, it just bullets piercing or, or a, fog. A Gatlin gun <laughs> shooting, just, you know, one right after another. They're just coming at you so fast. But but nothing that D'Souza said is was unique. He had said it all mm-hmm. a hundred times before, and you know, a, a day or two spent preparing for this could have had some some answers to it. And so what we wanted to do today and, and on this show is go through some of his more outrageous claims one at a time and yeah. and thoroughly debunk them. So the basic point that he was trying to make over and over again was that somehow or another Christians are being excluded from the public square, Yes, which made me wonder what planet he lives on. Uh, this country... <laughs> Christianity, Christianity owns the public square, essentially. Um, and, and he sort of immediately shifted ground from Christianity to theism. Well, they all believed in God. And therefore, mm-hmm. you know, a, a completely irrational conclusion. But we'll go through these one at a time. Let's start with the first clip. And this is uh, Dinesh D'Souza uh, talking about how religious voices are excluded. Yeah, and this is really, I think, his argument in a nutshell. He did say more than this, but this was the theme that he hammered on repeatedly over and over and over again. Separation of church and state as it's interpreted today basically means this. We have believers and unbelievers, and we have a public square, which is the shared democratic space of our society. So how how are we fair to everybody? We essentially identify the public square, then we identify all religious monuments, propositions, and views. We kick them out of the public square. We expel them. We don't allow them in. And we turn over the public square entirely to the secularists and the atheists and give them, in effect, a monopoly on the public square. And in doing this, we have been marvelously fair to everybody. Well, this, of course, is sheer nonsense. 
The truth of the matter is that in a diverse society, believers and unbelievers have to learn to share the public square. Uh, and so it seems to me that separation of church and state, in principle, a great idea. As it is enforced, it essentially makes religious believers of all stripes into second-class citizens. You need to be reading a lot of right-wing blogs to have that vision of America. You just have to be in a different reality <laughs> than the rest of us. You have to be smoking something because it just... I wanted to stand, what I wanted to do is, when I wanted to jump out of my seat and say, could you please define where this public square exists? What, mm. what are the components that make up the public square? Is it, is it statements by politicians? Because Christians certainly aren't right. excluded there. I mean, as we're taping this today, May 3rd, it's the National Day of Reason. We have exactly one non-believer, <laughs> at least open non-believer, out of 535 in the U.S. Congress. In fact, as far as I know, he's the only one who has ever come out and said, I don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. So the notion that atheists own and control the public square, I mean, what are we talking about public property, courthouse grounds, etc., where you put up monuments? Those are almost exclusively reserved for Christianity. Ten Commandments monuments all over the country in courthouse squares. And the moment anybody else wants to put something up there, then they want to prevent that. I mean, we had the Summum case out in Utah where this sort of minor little religious group wanted to put up a, uh, a monument to their seven aphorisms to, to put next to the Ten Commandments monument on the courthouse grounds. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they were denied. Uh, so, in fact, we have the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. Of what he's claiming. If if that is a portion of the public square, Christianity pretty much exclusively owns that. Now, that's starting to change a little bit. And it's starting to change in a really fascinating way. It's starting to change precisely because of some victories that Christian groups won in court. Mm -hmm. Starting with the Lamb's Chapel decision back in 1989, which was a limited public forum case involving the question of use of a high school. Uh, a group called Lamb's Chapel, a, a church, wanted to rent a high school facility uh, in New York, in the Center Marichet School District, to show uh, an anti-abortion film. Mm -hmm. After school hours, you know, just rent the auditorium and yeah. so forth. School said you can't do that. We won't let religious groups uh, rent the facilities. Went all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court, 9 nothing decision. Mm -hmm. Absolutely correct decision. Said no. If you're going to make your facilities available to the public, you can't then exclude religious people from that. Absolutely right. correct decision, and it was nine nothing, which is pretty rare. That case was argued by Jay Sekulow, the head of the American Center for Law and Justice and a big religious right legal figure. They were right. Yeah. But the ACLU, which he continually demonizes, also protects was, religious rights well, like and this in fact, all the time. In fact – I remember very clearly watching the 700 Club after that decision came down. And Jay Sekulow was on the 700 Club. The American Center for Law and Justice is Pat Robertson's group, so they promote their work a lot. And they were talking about this big victory they had won with the Lamb's Chapel decision. And Jay Sekulow actually said, Christians have a right to be in the public square, on par with everybody else, no matter what the ACLU says. <laughs> oh, really? And in fact, the ACLU had filed a brief on their side in that very case. And he knew it. And he, he must knew have. it. 
That, I mean, so this, this is where the you yeah. know the obvious dishonesty comes in. So, but it's not only distorting the actual facts of the matter; it's not even being honest with his opponent's argument at this point, because his idea, right, of course, is that any uh, that all religion is banned from the public square. Only atheists and secularists get their say. Religious people have to just shut up. He says later on. And, and yet we have – I mean look at all of the examples of legislation mm-hmm. that just plain quotes the Bible. You know, we have Randy Forbes and in, in, in his the from Virginia who's a, a, a congressman who for years has been submitting legislation and they have all these sort of non-binding resolutions about fealty to God and Christianity is a huge influence on America and so forth. I mean – and and it just not if it's not in the legislation itself. I mean, how often do we see congressmen justifying of course legislation by saying the Bible says this? Why you know it's we have all of these anti-gay marriage mm-hmm. res, uh, you know referendums around the country and, and and battles around the country, and the argument is always God disapproves of homosexuality, and that's why they can't get married. So the notion yeah. that Christians somehow can't use their religion to justify what? Yeah. In what reality well, do you live? And even even on the flip side, let's say Obama is trying to appeal to his policies that benefit the poor by saying, you know, this is a deeply Christian principle. Something like that to me even, using that – he's not legislating uh, on the basis of the Bible, but what he's saying is if you share these convictions, this is a policy you could agree with. And, th- and that's something I'm not opposed to. And again, it's, it's something Jacoby isn't opposed to right. either. And uh, that's part of what's so dishonest about this statement by D'Souza is that uh, he's already heard Jacoby's position at this point and he doesn't want to argue with it. He wants to argue with a straw man. Right. Let's, let's listen to Jacoby's opening statement where Jacoby specifically addresses the role of religion within the public sphere. Now, what I'm here to say to you is that even though I might agree with the liberal Catholics and disagree with Paul Ryan, that neither of what they're citing from the Bible or from popes is a basis for public policy, which must always be determined by some sort of agreement among competing interests and a reasoned assessment of evidence of what works and and what does not. And by the way, I would say exactly the same thing about secular humanism or atheism as rationales for public policy. As an atheist in the secular humanism, I believe, for instance, in universal human rights as rights based simply on our common humanity. In the end, though, to make these rights a reality here on Earth, we have to act on the basis of what is demonstrably good. Demonstrable not because some supernatural story said so, and not because Spinoza or Thomas Paine said so, but demonstrable because we can see the positive results before our eyes. So by all means, let us have all of the sometimes discord, sometimes harmonious voices of faith and secular philosophy in the public square. But don't try to sell your politics to me with thus saith the Lord. Now, it's pretty clear here that she is saying that religious voices have a role, have a place in the public sphere. It's just we don't adopt legislation for exclusively religious reasons. We, we, uh, we look for some sort of practical benefit. We reason these things through. Or at least we should. Yeah. 
And what she, and notice that she's not exempting her own worldview from this. She's saying we're not going to we're not going to give atheism a pass. We're not going to say just because Spinoza or David Hume or, or David else, Hume right. says this, therefore it's the case. Um, she's not going to exempt her own worldview from this either. Yet D'Souza pretended just the opposite. In fact, he over and over again claims that. Well, Susan just wants to exclude all religious voices and treat her own as canonical, right. despite the fact that she said explicitly the opposite of that. After D'Souza, after D'Souza again repeated this fake claim, Jacoby time and time again tries to restate what her original argument was so that people aren't just buying into his straw man. Everyone who believes in God and who is part of a religious tradition has the right to fully participate in the public square. To talk about the public square as, as one in which religious views are thrown out and secular views reign, it's a great example of the enormous success that the Christian right has had in painting itself as a victim. Uh, the fact is, in the public square, we have no shortage of all kinds of religious voices, as we have seen in the recent campaign. The question is not whether all voices belong in the public square. But obviously, they do. The question is, we make our, if, do we make our laws on the basis of religious belief? Here's D'Souza again, though, and not actually addressing Jacoby's real position, but just once again beating the tar out of his straw man that he's constructed. Uh, Christians have a brain the same as Susan Jacoby. We can look at the historical facts the same as she can. We can interpret them perhaps differently, but why is our interpretation somehow disallowed and hers canonical? Thank you. Susan, you have a minute to rebut. My interpretation is not canonical, as we could see from, from this Republican primary campaign, which spent an incredible time talking about religion as justification for public policy. It's just absolutely amazing that, that, that the Christian right says that people like me are saying that religious values have no place in the public square. I am saying, though, that they have no place as a justification for law. You have to show me that the death penalty does something we all want, which is discourages people from heinous acts. They have to do that before they can show that the death penalty is constitutional. But this question that she, she talks about, uh, you know, how perverse it is mm -hmm. to believe and claim that Christians are somehow locked out uh, uh and and aren't allowed to you know state their case while atheists are you know sort of allowed to roam free and mm -hmm. and control everything is it, just it reminds me of there was a thing um this is almost 20 years ago in the very early days of the internet uh the internet infidels um mm -hmm. had a thing on their page jeff louder uh maintained it and i'm not sure it's still being maintained but it was a a, a file called life in anti-christian america um, that sort of sarcastically made fun of this idea that America is anti-Christian, you know, you know, and basically it was sort of, you know, sarcastic restating of reality the way these people seem to see it. Um, like, you know, most major newspapers run a specially week, special weekly section devoted to atheism. There are no equivalent sections for religious news.
Mm-hmm. You know, clearly the opposite of reality. We live in a country with, you know, I don't know how many churches we have in this country. We have hundreds, maybe thousands of Christian radio stations, television stations, newspapers, millions of websites probably, and almost no voice anywhere in any legislature for non-believers at all. You cannot get elected in this country to any office above the most uh, you know, except in very, very narrow areas mm-hmm. without expressing your fealty to Christianity. We hear constant use of Christianity as a justification for public policy. We have multiple candidates for president uh, during this primary season claiming that God specifically told them to run. This persecution <laughs> complex... Yeah. I guess, as I often say, we shouldn't be surprised that a religion that is based on an act of martyrdom should foster (laughs) a persecution (laughs) complex. But it never ceases to amaze me that if you think that someone wishing you happy holidays is proof that Christianity has been marginalized in this country and that secular humanists are taking over the world, you're just not living on the same planet that the rest of us are. You're in a reality that I don't recognize. I think Jacoby hit the nail on the head at the very end of the uh, at the very end of the debate. Why? Why the persecution complex? And her answer is because uh, Christians suspect that they're losing their cultural hegemony. They are. They uh, they they, are. They see the writing on the wall. They see where things are trending and they are frantic now trying to regain their unchallenged power. I want to play another clip from D'Souza here on the subject of religion in the public sphere. And to me, this this is one of the most important clips of the debate. So it is a little bit long. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce this by saying, again, remember, Jacoby has made her position clear several times. She said, religious voices are welcome in the public sphere. It's just like the example of the death penalty. We wouldn't adopt a a policy like that because the Bible says so. We would adopt a policy like that because of some sort of demonstrable benefit it would provide. If it it could be established that it was a deterrent to crime, uh, then it could be a legitimate policy. Whether or not somebody's personal conviction for it is rooted in the Bible. Uh, now let's hear D'Souza's take. So here we have a claim by Susan Jacoby. I'm being disingenuous because what I really think uh, is that because the Bible says it, it ought to be the law of the land. My case, for example, against abortion relies exclusively on the Bible. I don't believe I've ever said anything even remotely resembling that. Even in my debates with atheists, I emphasize up front, I will never cite the Bible. I will never appeal to authority or sacred scripture. I'm going to argue solely on the basis of reason. It's a little ridiculous to then come around and and pretend, oh, Dinesh, you simply believe because the Bible says it, therefore it should be law. 
and here I think we get to the core of a certain breed of atheism, it is united with ignorant fundamentalism in reading the Bible in the crudest, most literal way possible. It has no sophistication. It has ignored 200 years of biblical understanding, biblical commentary, uh, the progressive understanding of scripture that's come through the centuries. It reads the Bible exactly in the way as, as, a, as, as some sort of a, uh, a stand on the podium uh, pastor uh, who just says, this is what it says, therefore believe it. And that's the atheist critique. But that's not what most Christians believe. The truth of the matter is religious conservatives do not take the Bible literally across the board. They take the Bible literally in some respects, uh, and yet they read the economic passages in the Bible contextually. So in other words, we are dealing here with, well, sincere people on both sides of the spectrum attempting to use, you may say, philosophical and theological analysis to make sense of what the Bible means. So my objection to Susan is not that the religious conservatives are right or the liberals are right, but she seems to think that there's a certain category of discourse that enjoys an elevated status. If you don't give, if you give religious justifications, as she puts it, you're somehow out of bounds. We all get our convictions from a complex set of preferences, and this applies as much to the pro-life issue as any other. I may think that I want to protect the unborn because I don't know if it's a human being or not. I just don't want to take the risk. Now, does that make me a religious fanatic? Does that make me a secular philosopher? I don't know. But the fact of the matter is whether I'm getting those convictions because of uh, being steeped in the Bible or whether I'm getting those convictions because I've been steeped in the writings of Thoreau, who cares? My argument stands on its own merits. No religious people are saying, because the Bible says this, Susan, you must believe it. What they're saying is, because the Bible says it, I believe it. And I'm saying there's nothing undemocratic about that. Now, that, I actually thought that was probably his strongest point. Right, because he's suddenly matching what Jacoby's arguing exactly. for. Exactly. It's his strongest <laughs> point, except that I think he's presenting a far more, he's presenting sort of his more reasonable yeah. um you know, interpretation of these things. And when he says, no one argues that we should adopt a policy just because the Bible says so, the hell they don't. Right. Well, I, that that <laughs> needs to be considered. But if this really is, if this really is his take on things, that Christians thoughtfully interpret their scriptures and uh, arrive at certain convictions uh, because of that, but don't argue for them purely from the Bible, but actually make reasoned arguments and they should be considered on their own merits and not simply dismissed, then my question is, what objection does he have to Jacoby? Why is there a debate here? Well, his objection isn't to Jacoby. It's to that straw man version that he's built of her argument. Exactly it. and, and, And in presenting himself as the voice of Christian politics... The, I mean, it's, in a sense, that's a straw man, too. Right. He's putting out a positive straw man that doesn't represent what a hell of a lot of Christians right. do, in fact, argue. I mean, we hear this all the time. And Jacoby even quoted the statistics. It was something like, I can't remember the exact figure um, off the top of my head, but uh, it was it was something like two-thirds of, of um, Christians – Interpreting the Bible as literally true. Well, I, I I have a problem with those kind of statistics because mm-hmm. first of all, I don't believe anybody 
interprets all of the Bible as literally true, even those who claim they do. Well, that's true. Because you look at the verse in Isaiah, for example, that says the mountains sang and the trees clapped. Well, nobody, even the most hardcore fundamentalist well, biblical yes. literate is going to say, well, sure, the trees actually They clap. recognize metaphors and figures it, it, of speech. Exactly. Yes. But there is certainly those who take larger swaths of it as literal than others. Yes. And of course this gets into a whole interesting discussion about um you know how you decide whether a passage is to be interpreted liberal literally or not. And of course the problem historically is that an awful lot of the Bible that used to be taken as literal truth has now been debunked by science and then it magically transforms itself into allegory. And religion gets credit for that move. Exactly. And we're going to talk more about that particular phenomenon because it's very interesting how uh, that dynamic plays itself out. But I do uh, I do want to note that what he's doing here is, of course, he's comparing the best possible case scenario of, of a religiously motivated member of society right. or politician, and he's comparing it with the most ghastly possible example of a secularist, someone who, who right. doesn't even want religious people to be able to talk about their ideas right. in public. This right. is where his outrage comes from. Right. Uh, and, and, it, and it's funny. He's, he's getting so upset about uh, Jacoby being disingenuous here, calling or him calling disingenuous. calling him disingenuous. And then he yeah. did that – to but, the yeah. tenth degree against her it's later. Exactly on. what he's doing to her right now. Yeah, and and um, yeah. <laughs> again, I you know I have a problem. I think Jacoby's position is exactly right when she says, "Yes, you, obviously your religious faith can and your religious beliefs can motivate you. Nobody can stop you from thinking what you think. But that if you're going to make a serious argument for a given public policy, um, it has to be something that is." that is reachable by all people, that can appeal to everyone, not just those who believe in your religion. Just saying God said so mm-hmm. is not enough. Make a rational argument for why this policy will make society better. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly right. But you're right. There's such a straw man going on here. And it's so, you know, I, mean, I said up front, Zadesh D'Souza is a very smart guy. He's a very well-educated guy, and he's very eloquent. And and what that tells me is that this is intentional. Yeah. This is not a misinterpretation. This is him being deliberately dishonest. This is him saying, I'm going to make this argument even though I know it's not true because I'm just trying to win, you know, people to think I'm winning, you know. Mm-hmm. It is, um, quite frankly, it's immoral. I mean, that's the irony of it, right? Right. Is that it's actually not ethical to do that. You're not being intellectually honest when you do that. And I, and I, and, and that I think is, is what just sort of screamed out at me, um, about this entire thing. And we're going to return to this public square idea a little bit later on, but, um, let's, let's move on to the next part. Much of this debate revolved around, um, Thomas Jefferson. And almost immediately, uh, in his very first speech, um, D'Souza shifted the ground from Christianity to theism. Remember, the subject of the debate was, is Christianity good for American politics? Right. So let's play the clip of him talking about Jefferson. This is sort of the basis of his entire argument here. Here's Thomas Jefferson. He was a man of the Enlightenment. 
He had a particularly, you may say, ambivalent relationship to the Bible, usually reading it accompanied by a pair of lengthy scissors, cutting out the miracles and so on. Sure. And yet when the founders basically said to Jefferson, you go into a room and sit down and tell us where these inalienable rights come from, Jefferson comes back and he doesn't say, well, they come from the social contract. No, they're inalienable because they come from our creator. We are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. So even Jefferson, when he sits down to it and thinks about human dignity and all the rights that come out of that, he can't think of some automatic transaction of reason, some Euclidean proposition, some so-called bogus syllogism that generates dignity. There is none. Dignity comes out of the idea that there is a transcendent element in humanity, and either you accept that or you don't. Now, wow, that was a whopper. Yeah, and, and you notice how he immediately shifts ground from Christianity to theism. Right. Jefferson was not a Christian. Jefferson was a theist. He did believe in God. He believed in a personal provident God, but not the Christian God. And in fact, he referred to the God of the Old Testament as cruel, capricious, vindictive, and unjust. He called the four gospel writers a band of dupes and impostors. He said Paul was the first distorter of the doctrines of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was nothing more than an ethical philosopher and a very good one. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, D'Souza even mentions going to the Bible with the, the scissors, I mean, the famous Jefferson Bible, where he cut out all the miracles, he cut out all the claims of Jesus' divinity, he cut out the resurrection, the atonement, the virgin birth, every element of the Christian religion, essentially, except Jesus saying, be nice to one another, essentially, is gone for Jefferson. So he shifted ground from Christianity to theism, and he's now citing Jefferson as evidence of our Christian origin, of the influence of Christianity when Jefferson was someone who rejected 99% of Christianity right off the bat. Now, that's pretty dishonest on its own. The second level of this is, though, where in the Bible or in the entire history of Christian thought prior to that point mm -hmm. is there any support whatsoever for the notion of inalienable rights, for the notion of political liberty or religious liberty? They are non-existent. The Bible doesn't say one word about well, those things. Quite the contrary. And quite the contrary. <laughs> right. Quite the contrary says uh, that if there are neighbors and your if your neighboring town has people who are enticing you away from the Lord, you know, pick up stones. If a family member of yours says, "Let us go worship other gods," you're to be the one who casts the first stone. Right. So it's it's there's nothing like religious. Liberty. I mean, where's the human dignity in in those passages? Right. And nothing that he's talking in the about. history of, as Jefferson said himself, there had been centuries leading up to that of attempts to enforce Christian uniformity mm -hmm. uh, in countries with established churches. Millions of people had been, as he put it, burned, tortured, and killed to to reach that uniformity. And that was a major part of the reason why he was such a strong proponent of separation of church and state. There was not a single example ever, including in our own colonies. I mean, prior to the revolution, all but two of our original 13 colonies were essentially little theocracies. And Rhode Island was the first one that wasn't when Roger Williams and Anne Hutchinson left the Massachusetts Bay Colony because they were going to kill them if they didn't yeah. because they were 
slightly less Christian or a different brand of Christian. They, you didn't even have to be Muslim or Jewish or atheist. If you were just the wrong brand of Christian in Massachusetts, you were at the very least exiled or jailed. And at worst, if you were a Quaker, which was their particular, they really hated Quakers, uh, you could find yourself either crushed with heavy stones or burned at the stake. So this notion that, that, the, that the idea of inalienable rights is a Christian principle right. and comes out of Christian thought and Christian history is as nonsensical as anything I've ever heard, you know. And even more generally as a theistic principle, if he wants to claim, well, okay, if we were to exclude God from the public sphere, which, again, nobody's saying we should do that. Uh, well, we couldn't have brilliant ideas like uh, the Declaration of Independence. Yes, Jefferson evokes a transcendent foundation for these rights. He talks about providence. He's using a popular philosophical language of the time. It does not follow from that, then, that in the Declaration of Independence, some sort of general vague theism or deism is being established as our core state ideology. Right. And it does not follow from that that uh, natural rights thinking cannot be based on a, a anything other than a transcendent foundation. Right. You can In make fact, a perfectly right. Quite the contrary. Right. You can make a perfectly rational argument for this without ever including God in it. And the other part of this is that he's using Jefferson as the premise of his entire argument here and then reaching conclusions that are exactly the opposite of what right, right. Jefferson rejected every conclusion that D'Souza reached. I mean, he was a staunch proponent of strict separation, believing that even the most benign, non-coercive uh, declarations of belief in God by the government, Thanksgiving proclamations and that sort of thing. Even those, he said, were forbidden. He refused to issue them despite tremendous pressure. Uh, he refused yeah. to issue them during his uh, eight years in office. He believed that the government had no business at all even discussing uh, religion. And uh, D'Souza uh, would flip his lid if anybody said we shouldn't have Thanksgiving as a national holiday right. for, for religious purposes. Right. But again, that's and, something Jefferson and, and importantly, D'Souza made it very clear that his interpretation of the Establishment Clause is that it forbids only the actual establishment of a national church or coercing someone. Those were the only two things. You know, coerced religious exercises. Those are the only things that he would view as violating the Establishment Clause. Jefferson took the exact opposite position uh, from that. Uh, and the entire history of the formation of the First Amendment is important to talk about here. Um, because there were at least three wordings of the First Amendment that were considered and rejected by Congress when they were, uh, when they were building the Bill of Rights that would have banned only the establishment of a national church or the establishment of a particular sect or denomination. They were considered, they were rejected. We right. ended up with the much broader wording that we have now, which is forbidding any law respecting an establishment of religion, far broader wording. And that was absolutely intentional because they clearly wanted to go much further than merely banning the establishment. So in other words, D'Souza's, D'Souza's position was considered and rejected. Exactly. And the other thing to remember is uh, when we're talking about Jefferson, Jefferson's act for establishing religious freedom in in uh, the state of Virginia 
well, it was adopted in 1786, just prior to the Constitution, and it was the basis for the First Amendment, essentially. It was the model for what eventually became the First Amendment. Now, that did much more than disestablish the Anglican Church in Virginia, which it did. But it was in response to a bill by Patrick Henry that would have used tax dollars to support Christian ministers mm-hmm. uh, around the state. And it forbid the use of tax dollars to support religion, whether it supported one specific sect or whether it supported all religious views, no taxpayer money could go under that. That was Jefferson's view. So he's using Jefferson to defend his position, which is the exact opposite of Jefferson's position. Well, that's why he has to use something like vague language in the right. in the Declaration of Independence, because if he were to cover the specific examples that – directly address the claims he's making, his whole argument would fall apart. Exactly. That's his method of argumentation. Keep things nice and vague and cheery in support of his position so that he's giving uh, this kind of false sense then that what he's saying is totally in line with what the founders believe. And it certainly was in line with what some of the founders believe. Oh, yeah. This notion – that the founders collectively can be referred to as agreeing on anything is, right. of course, bogus. And, and I've written about this for a long time. And I've said when you take the five major founders, and I'm talking about the first four presidents and Ben Franklin. Uh, you maybe could add Alexander Hamilton to that too. But Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison. Now, Madison was, of course, the primary author of the Bill of Rights. Uh, and is considered the father of the Constitution. He, he's actually, I think, more important when you're talking about the First Amendment than Jefferson because Jefferson wasn't there either for the writing of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights. He was in France yeah. uh, as an ambassador at the time. He was very influential on it, but it was Madison that really did the work there. Uh, when you look at those four, they had – when it comes to this question of uh, of how to interpret the Establishment Clause – there was a pretty clear difference. You had Jefferson and Madison on one side. You had Washington and Adams on the other. None of them believed that you could coerce anyone into any uh, you know, religious exercise or religious belief of any kind. Um, none of them certainly believed that you could have any, anything like an established church. And all of them believed that tax dollars shouldn't really go to support religion. The difference between them is when you talk about these sort of public declarations – Mm-hmm. Non-coercive, only suggestive, only advisory declarations of thanksgiving and prayer and fasting and yeah. so forth. That's where the big split comes in. Washington and Adams both believed that that was fine as long as they were non-sectarian, as long as they talked about religion as opposed to Christianity. None of those declarations ever mentioned Jesus. They didn't mention mm-hmm. Christianity. They just mentioned belief in God. Jefferson and Madison took the opposite position, that even though, even that, even that sort of benign, advisory-only, non-coercive declaration, even that to them was a violation of the First Amendment. Now, James Madison did issue a couple of them while he was in office during the War of 1812 under enormous political pressure. And then later after he left office said, biggest mistake I made. Hmm. Clearly, I was going beyond my, you know, my power granted me by the Constitution and the First Amendment forbid that. And it was a huge mistake. And in fact, Jefferson and Madison, Madison in particular, took a more strict interpretation of the First Amendment than even the ACLU does today. (laughs) 
I mean, when they, t- the, the, the religious right wants us to believe that, that the whole notion of a separation of church and state is this modern invention that the founding fathers never believed it. Well, Madison, who was the key person on this question, he even believed and argued very strongly that military chaplains were unconstitutional. Right. That the military shouldn't have chaplains. That if, if they did, churches should pay for them. If the church wants to send a chaplain along with a military unit, they can pay for it themselves. But the government had no business establishing that at all. Um, uh, or congressional chaplains, which we have. Even the ACLU doesn't take that strong a position. On. Right. So this notion that we've sort of invented this new modern myth of separation that didn't exist at the time, yes, there was a well, fight. And over. even with military chaplains, up until Reagan, a chaplain had to be prepared to provide uh, – support for anyone, regardless of their religion. So they had to be trained in, uh, in uh, across different world religions and be prepared right. to minister to anyone. So, so even even allowing something like that, you get you still get the notion, even with military chaplaincy, that we're not going to establish one religion as having priority over the right. other. All must be served equally. Right. Let's take a break there because we're at about uh, 40, 45 minutes here. So let's take a break. Let's come back in the second hour, and we'll have a lot more to talk about uh, this D'Souza debate. And we are back with more with uh, my friend Jeremy Behan. We are talking about the debate that happened uh, between Dinesh D'Souza and Susan Jacoby and all of the uh, – Incredible dishonesty <laughs> and, and false claims made by Dinesh D'Souza were sort of going through them uh, one by one. And one of the things that that uh, D'Souza kept arguing was about the Christian influence on America's founding and on the principles of the country and so forth. Um, so let's play uh, another clip here from, from D'Souza and then we'll talk about it. If you look at the great social movements of American politics, not only the movement that led to the founding, which was driven in part by the First Great Awakening, but the movements that led to the temperance movement, the uh, suffragette movement, the civil rights movement, the anti-slavery movement, they were not only waves of religious revival that often preceded and sometimes accompanied these movements, but the arguments in favor of these causes were made in explicitly religious terms. So completely counter to reality. I mean, yes, <laughs> there is a small little kernel of truth there. There were, of course, Christians who were involved in the abolition movement with slavery in the 1840s and 1850s. There were, of course, Christians like Martin Luther King fighting for civil rights. Um, I'm a little baffled by the fact that he includes the temperance movement yeah, as, uh, <laughs> as an example of some great social advance. In fact, it I would did think you'd in, want to distance yourself from that. Right. Of course, that was an ex- almost exclusively religious um, uh, crusade. Yeah, so he's got that right. Yeah, he got that one completely <laughs> right. Uh, the but, bad ideas were almost completely religious. Right. But yeah, the damage, I mean, we're still uh, recovering from the damage uh, that that prohibition did to this country. Well, we still have prohibition. And we still have it just on, on things other than alcohol. So I was a little astonished that he would include that in the list yeah, as if too. that ranked up there with, you know, giving women the right to vote, stopping people from, you know, having a beer. But the rest of these, yes, there were Christians on the right side of all Plenty of those Plenty of issues. Christian abolitionists. Sure. Plenty of Christian pro-slavery people, too. Well, that's the thing. And they were on the winning side of the biblical argument, I'll add. Exactly. I mean, the institutional support of Christianity mm-hmm. was almost entirely on the pro-slavery side. The Southern Baptist Convention 
now the second largest Christian denomination in the entire country, was formed specifically to support slavery in 18, I believe, 45. Um, you know, at sort of the height of those battles. Um, and the declarations of secession from many of the southern states included verses straight out of the Bible with, because of course, the Bible does support slavery. There are dozens and dozens of verses, whole chapters of books devoted to supporting slavery and not a single statement against it anywhere in the Bible. So as you said, they were, you know, the, the weight of institutional Christianity was on the side of slavery, even though there were some sort of radical Christians um, on the abolitionist side. But the primary reason why slavery was maintained, the primary rhetorical support for slavery came almost entirely from Christianity. Well, right, but because not only does the Old Testament uh, actually endorse slavery and give all sorts of rules for how to keep slaves and uh, how you should treat them, but even in the New Testament, uh, and I think Jacoby brought this up, that um, Paul, the Apostle Paul never told Christians not to own slaves. He told them how to own slaves. Right. And he told slaves, I mean, this is, of course, the book of Philemon, slaves obey thy masters. So, because that's God's yeah, will. Pro-slavery Christians had the Bible on their side. Absolutely. Uh, and it was the, it was the liberal Christians of the time that had to, you know, make these more, uh, more, allegorizing of the Bible, right. had to make broader appeals on more general principles right. to get their point and, across. And I've argued with people about this for a long time, and I find the position so irrational. They say, well, God had to sort of slowly coax us to that point. You know, that's mm -hmm. why he told them to slaves obey their masters because he didn't want them to get hurt, but that but that the the love your neighbor thing that, that Jesus said, that that was just sort of going to slowly bring people around to being on the right side. And I'm looking, I'm going, you know what? The Bible is absolutely full of these absolutely abrupt, yeah. do not do this, period. Everything so, yeah. from, you know, <laughs> don't, you know, don't have premarital sex to, you know, uh, don't wear shirts with two different fabrics. I them. told you to kill all the men, women, and children, but you kept some of the virgins for yourselves. <laughs> exactly. Therefore, I'm going to wipe you guys out, exactly. too. I mean, the rest of the Bible, God seems to have no yeah. problem whatsoever making a very draconian, do not do this, period, under any circumstances, or I will destroy you. Strictly enforced. And when it comes to slavery, he goes, yeah, you know, I better take my time with this one. You know, there's so many and commands. And after 2,000 years of waiting, suddenly, whoop. That must be just the right time. Exactly. Just, I mean, historically, it's just such a perverse position. Yeah. Um, and 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 of course, I mean the same thing's true the other way. You look at, at it's it's even true. Can I can I interject? Sure, here? absolutely. It's even true of the pseudoscience supporting racism too. Uh, oftentimes, in a in an attempt to show that secularists, uh, atheists, and agnostics at the time were no better. They evoke many different uh, of these like scientific right. charts. Social that Darwinism, are, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But I don't have the references right in front of me, but Reasonable Doubts fans can turn to our episode entitled Darwin and Hitler, where we actually show, trace the historical roots of a lot of this racist pseudoscience to, uh, to theologians who were trying to make the case that Africans were an entirely different species other than human right. beings. 
And so you can you can trace even the secular racist science material back to a religious origins at the time. Yeah. And and look at his other examples. Okay, women's suffrage. Are you seriously going to argue that Christianity was the reason why we gave women the right to vote? I mean, it was the primary arguments against it came from Christians came from theologians. It came from the most influential religious leaders at the time. Same thing is true of civil rights for blacks. Where did those arguments come from? Well, just look at the the people at the forefront of the suffragette movement. Uh, you know, very early on, we have what Elizabeth Cady Stanton, mm-hmm. her uh, Helen Keller, who wrote the Women's Bible, which was just absolutely scandalous. In fact, Jacoby could have answered this way better than either of us because she did a she's written a whole book about uh, this, a right? lot of research into the the uh, the more free thought free thinking origins of uh, of the women's suffrage movement and actually she makes a really good point about how oftentimes free thinkers are at the forefront of these movements in American history but they've been suppressed right. uh, they've been marginalized Staten might be an exception to this case. Uh, but oftentimes their stories are marginalized. They're put in the background precisely because it seems that religion seems to be the one that is eager to pat itself on the back and give itself credit for right. all of its accomplishments. And you look at the, the civil rights movement for blacks and, and, and um, you know, where were the primary arguments against it coming from? Right. Coming from the institutional Christian church. And you look at, for example, the Loving versus Virginia decision. In 1967, or excuse me, 1969, uh, that that overturned all the state laws on interracial marriage. The, the the opposition to that came almost exclusively from Christian churches, and there were court rulings going back decades before that that actually quoted the Bible mm-hmm. and quoted the Hamitic theory of the blacks are cursed because of Ham's yeah, rebellion and blah blah blah. I mean, that was sort of tr- that was sort of standard Christian doctrine for centuries. By D'Souza's reasoning, I will guarantee you that 20 or 30 years from now, if he's having this debate again, he's going to be claiming that the battle for gay rights that will have been won by then was entirely a Christian idea to begin with. Oh, you know, <laughs> and that's because that's exactly what he's I doing can't, here. I can't wait to be able to be old enough to roll my eyes at that one. But you are absolutely right. right. They will point, try to spin this. As he'll be a, pointing to yeah. Gene Robinson. And Jim Wallace and people like that who are Christians who fight for equality for gays and lesbians and, and be deserve saying, our thanks and for absolutely, doing so. Absolutely, allies right. in the fight love them. But but he'll be pointing to them and yeah. saying, "See, it was all it was all based on Christian principles to begin with," and ignoring the fact that the entire weight of Christian institutional you know belief in right. this country was foursquare opposed to this and fought tooth and nail to not only keep it equality from happening, but to do the exact opposite, you know? So yeah, this is, again, it's just so, it's, I keep using the phrase perverse because yeah, well, that seems to be. American Christianity has been successfully more or less, I, we, we still have, we still have some major issues, but more or less American Christianity has been declawed and defanged over the years as yes. a result of secular policies to right. the point I would flip it around. It's it's more secular society and philosophy that is really changing and influencing and transforming Christianity Absolutely. as it's practiced today. And so D'Souza can get up there and say these things, and people with no sense of history 
can go, well, yeah, why are you unfairly picking on – he can evoke Martin Luther King, which every time a, a hardcore conservative does that. <laughs> I, I, I do find I it ironic that, that just a few minutes later in the debate after evoking Martin Luther King, uh, Dinesh D'Souza complains about how conservatives are, are offended, their sensibilities are offended by diversity curriculums <laughs> and everything else. Yeah, so if we it, could it, probably <laughs> do away with fossil fuels, if we could just harness the ener- energy of Martin Luther King spinning in his grave <laughs> yeah. every time Glenn Beck, you know, invokes the memory invokes of Martin him. Luther yeah. King. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, this is, this is all, you know, quite ridiculous. Um, but again, it shows the selection of evidence and this kind of uh, weaselly equivocation that is the mainstay of D'Souza's argumentation. Right. And, and returning for a moment to the, what you just said about you know this really being the triumph of secular ideas that ended up being adopted by Christianity, I have been saying this for years. Modern Christianity is very different from what it was 300 years ago or even 200 years ago. Um, and it's very different because it has been mixed with Enlightenment ideas. Yes. Um, and that is when you look at sort of the Christian Muslim issue today, I think that is the primary difference is that when Christianity was the same age Islam is now, about 1,300, 1,400 years old, well, look at the 13th and 14th century <laughs> right? and look what Christianity was like back then. Prior to the Reformation, prior to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period, prior to this mixing and, as you put it, a declawing because of its mixing with Enlightenment ideals, it was far more brutal than it is now. Mm-hmm. I mean, as bad as it is now, it was a thousand times worse. Well, and even then it had been somewhat – so Christianity after the 12th century, once thanks to the Muslims, they get a whole extra set of Greek and Roman texts now right. uh, to kind of enrich their tradition. Most of the progress – I'll, I'll make this point later because it will become relevant again. But a lot of the progress and advancement you see in Christian theology and Christian belief comes from engaging and assimilating ideas from other cultures. And it's, it was the same thing with Islam, Islam the peak of their civilization uh, from the 9th to the 12th century was very much because of the power of, of Greek and Roman philosophy right. on their thought. And now, yes, Islam tends to be more isolated from ideas in the West and other places and hasn't seen the kind the same kind of declawing and effect uh, that we see in Christianity. Hopefully that will change. Now, uh, just 30 seconds after the clip we played, um, then D'Souza made the argument that if you took away the influence of Christianity, the American founding doesn't happen. It's interesting. Not only are these these sort of battles to I- increase civil rights in various cases were all the result of Christianity, but that the founding principles of the nation yeah. don't exist. Let's play that clip. So does it, in the wake of all this, even make any sense to talk about does Christianity have a role in American politics to, to turn Susan Jacoby's question on its head if you were to subtract the influence of Christianity from the West? What would be left? If you were to subtract it from America, no founding, no declaration of independence, no anti-slavery movement, uh, no civil rights movement. So the fact of the matter is that Christianity has had an incredibly powerful, and I would argue on the balance, powerfully positive 
role in shaping American life and American politics. Even the atheist is standing on a Christian mountain. Now, this argument that Christianity was sort of intrinsic to the founding and to our, our American ideals is something that we hear from the religious right all the time. I mean, David Barton, you know, is sort of the most extreme example of that. But there are some arguments here that are made, not made by D'Souza, but sort of that back up this argument that are, are absolutely false. First of all, nowhere in the Constitution does it ever mention the Bible. Nowhere in the defenses of the Constitution do any of the founding fathers mention the Bible. We have the Federalist Papers written by John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. They were written to explain and defend every single provision of the U.S. Constitution. Bible is mentioned nowhere in them. Christian history or Christian you know, theology is mentioned nowhere anywhere in those documents. But they do mention lots of other sources. They mention specific sources, people like Algernon Sidney, Lord Bolingbroke, John Locke, Cicero, Montesquieu, Plato... They mention the specific sort of intellectual forebears and sources yeah. of those things. They don't talk about the Bible anywhere. Well, and you could just go to these texts th themselves. I mean, what what does our democracy look more like? John Locke's writings on liberty? Right. Uh, or, or does it look like uh, the political system established in the Bible? Right. If you look at the political scheme, the godly endorsed political scheme, in the Bible, you get you get two basic political setups. You either get a tribal confederacy that didn't work, or you have monarchy, just right. flat out monarchy chosen directly by God. God says this is your king, right? Right. And and if the prophets occasionally uh, rail against the kings for uh, for not handling their money fairly, well then okay, yes, we could we could we could find certain kind of humanitarian threads throughout. The, the Hebrew Bible's political writings, but that's their political system. Yeah, nowhere Turn, in the Bible is there right. any support for, as we were talking about before, for religious freedom, for political liberty. None of that exists anywhere in the Bible. So he's fond of saying our civilization is rooted in Jerusalem and Athens. Right. Let's turn to what Athens has to say. Clisthenes, the father of Athenian democracy, this is the system he set up in 507 BC, where major decisions were decided by a majority vote uh, in an assembly of all citizens. You had councils formed uh, that submitted measures to a general assembly. Membership in your council was uh, was actually available to any free male citizen. They initiated a system for electing magist magistrates by taking geography and dividing it into separate districts for nominating candidates. No specialized training was required for office unless you were a general. They paid poor farmmen stipends because they didn't want any citizen who was available to serve on, on the general council to turn it down because of income reasons. So they did generally didn't pay people because they didn't want people seeking political office for monetary gain. But if you were poor and disadvantaged, they would actually give you a, a stipend so that you could be an empowered member of the political process there. Now, there's nothing even closely approaching that coming out of Jerusalem. Right. That's coming you out say, of when Athens. When he says Jerusalem and Athens, what part did Jerusalem right. do here? It seems yeah, these are remarkably similar structurally to the system mm -hmm. that we have. 
the specific sort of tripartite, uh, you know, judiciary, legislative, and we're executive. We're not a direct democracy. Right. We're, that, we're... But that all comes out of the writings of Montesquieu mm-hmm. uh, and John Locke. And so, yeah, clearly we've got the roots of this here, and none of them have anything to do with the Bible. Um, there's another really popular argument for this, and you hear this from people like David Barton all the time, which is the this claim that during the founding period, a huge percentage, the number I've, I've seen it anywhere from 34% to 80% of the quotes from the founding fathers included Bible verses of their writings about politics and so forth. And this is a misstatement of a study by a guy named Donald Lutz. And it was a study in, the, I think, the American Political Science Review mm-hmm. um, of the sort of, of 15,000 uh, newspaper articles and letters and so forth from the founding period, from, which is a pretty broad. It was actually about 16 years. Um, and in fact, when you read the study, you find the exact opposite is true, that during the the years where the Constitution was being written and ratified, 1787, 1788, it was ratified in early 1789. During that time when it was being written, when it was being discussed in the state ratification convention and so forth, there were no Bible references at all, hardly, in this. Nowhere in the discussion was this. In fact, the only people at the time that brought up the Bible were the anti-federalists. They were people like Patrick Henry, who were opposed to the passage of the Constitution and one of the reasons they were opposed to the passage of the Constitution is because it wasn't an explicitly Christian document. It didn't say anything about relying on the favor of mm-hmm. Christ or anything like that, which was covenantal language that existed in a lot of the state constitutions at the time and, and the colonials. But it didn't exist in the, in the Constitution. The other thing that, that, that they complained about at all of the state ratification conventions and tried to get amended was the no religious tests, Article 6, that said no religious tests for office will be allowed at the federal level. They were then allowed at the states. Mm. They are no longer. And the argument from the religious right of that day (laughs) was that the no religious test clause was evil and anti-Christian because, oh my goodness, a Quaker or a Jew or a Mohammedan, as they called them then, <laughs> could could become president, or a, or a papist, as they called them then, instead of Catholics. I mean, there were, there were ministers who got up at state ratification conventions and gave speeches about what would happen if a papist becomes president and uses the American army at the behest of the Pope. What if a Jew became president, and he's the commander-in-chief, and he could use the American army to rebuild the Temple of Jerusalem. Oh, my gosh. You know, (laughs) the only people citing the Bible at the time were the opponents of the Constitution, not the ones who were in favor of it. And, in fact, the Lutz study, about more than half of all the documents studied that he studied were sermons, which were frequently reprinted in local papers there. So it's no surprise that a sermon would include right. quotes from the Bible. It didn't have anything to do with what the founding fathers themselves said. Well, and you pointed out, like with the example of Madison, just because somebody uses political, uh, you know, religious language in a speech doesn't even mean that they 
it, it doesn't mean they did that freely. They may have been under political pressure, may have even regretted it in Madison's right. case. Or, you know, just plain were pandering. I mean, right. it's not like politicians that day are any different from the ones today. You know, yes, they're going to pander to the religious um, if that's going to be of political advantage to them. Mm-hmm. And, there, and the other thing is, I mean, you look at the treaty with Tripoli, for example, which right. is frequently misquoted or misattributed at least. But this was passed in, I think it was 1791. No, later than that, 1797. No, 180. Ah. Anyway, while John Adams, I don't remember specifically, but at, when John Adams was in office, it was negotiated under Washington. John Adams signed it after he came into office. It was ratified by the Senate. And one of the sections of that begins with the statement, as the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. That was ratified unanimously by the Senate. It was signed by John Adams. Um, You look at what John Adams wrote about the Constitution. Um, After the Constitution was, was ratified, he wrote a document called A Defense of the Constitution of the United States. Um, in which, and let me quote this because I think this is a really interesting quote. He said, the United States of America have exhibited perhaps the first example of governments erected on the simple principles of nature. And if men are now sufficiently enlightened to disabuse themselves of artifice, imposture, hypocrisy, and superstition, they will consider this event as an era in their history. Although the detail of the formation of the American governments is at present little known or regarded either in Europe or in America, it may hereafter become an object of curiosity. It will never be pretended that any persons employed in that service had interviews with the gods or were in any degree under the inspiration of heaven more than those that work upon ships or houses or laboring in merchandise or agriculture. It will be forever acknowledged that these governments were contrived merely by the use of reason and the senses. Wow. That's tremendous, yeah. Pretty clear statement written by John Adams. Um, so this notion that the Constitution is based on Christianity—that without Christianity we wouldn't have—no, these were Enlightenment ideas. These were Greek and Roman ideas that then were brought back up by Enlightenment philosophers during the 17th and 18th centuries, and that's where we get our government right. from. And just like Christianity tends to do, they they when you find a good idea. Christianity finds an internal rationale for it. Right. And they absorb it and then say, see, we were there all along. D'Souza will occasionally say things like this, like, oh, separation in church and state is a Christian principle because Jesus said, render unto Caesar. Right. And he said that during this debate. Right, right. Well, that's a pretty flimsy foundation. Oh, really? Limited government, representational And And the question I would have asked him if I'd had a chance was, why is it that that verse wasn't used to support separation of church and state in the intervening 1,750 years. Right, because it had nothing to do with Nobody thought that that was a support for separation of church and state until after Enlightenment philosophers said, we should separate church and state. And then they went, ah, ah, yeah, Jesus was for it all along, even though nobody up until then who believed in Jesus ever saw that that was the case. Right. Just because they can find a proof text that seems to support it doesn't mean that's where the idea originated. And besides, it's just it's simply the case of a genetic fallacy. Let's say the separation of church and state did originate with Christianity. Maybe a better claim that D'Souza could have made was to call out Augustine's the city of uh, the city of God 
there are some notions in there that the that the authority of kings and the authority of bishops and popes are separate. Uh, that we don't want too much. Uh, we we don't want uh, the the king's right, of course, to dictate the truths of the religion. So let's say that that somehow was the the fountainhead. That was the wellspring from which all church-state separation ideas came from. It's not the case historically, but let's say it is. It still would be the genetic fallacy to say that because we can trace the origins of this idea way back to something here, that the current understanding of it and practice of it bears some sort of relation to its origin. Right. It's, it's just a flat-out fallacy. And the, the point that I keep making, the question I always ask whenever people bring up this, well, the Constitution is a Christian document, is this. Okay, let's find analogs. Let's point to various provisions in the Constitution and then show me the Bible first that supports them. Good luck. You can't find them. They don't exist. I mean, I'll show you ones that go against them. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, can, the I only thing that quite even comes remotely close is there's a provision that the post office is, is closed on Sundays. Well, that's merely a matter of yeah. political convenience. Everybody's in church <laughs> that day anyway, so, you know, you have to give people a day off. But, and yeah. even that one was resisted for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, the, it, initially, the post office did operate on Sunday. It was it was right. quite a blow to a lot of people when they when they stopped that. Yeah. So I mean, that's the only one you could even right. make a possible argument for. There's no support in the Bible for any other provision of the Constitution, and, and a good deal of it that's you know you can cite against it. So again, the idea that the Constitution is a Christian document. And by the way, this is really interesting. You look at the history of this. As I said, the, the, the people who were quoting the Bible at the time of that were the people who were opposed to the Constitution, and particularly because there was no explicitly Christian language in the preamble. And there were what's called Christian nation amendments offered at the ratification uh, conventions at the time. And then after the U.S. Constitution was, was ratified, every few years, uh, some group would try to amend the Constitution. It's been tried, I think, 27 times total. There have been, I think, in the history of the country, 27 different Christian nation amendments that have been submitted to Congress um, and, and, and never bothered to win. And they went all the way through up in the le- most recent one, I think, was 1980 um, that, that, that this was tried. And their argument was the Constitution's a flawed document. It doesn't declare our our belief in God, and therefore God's going to punish us. The people at the time of the Constitution, the religious right of that day, were arguing that if we pass the Constitution, God's wrath would be down upon us because we don't talk about him. It's not. It's a godless document in their view. That was the view until about the middle of the 20th century, until the mid-1900s, you know, when all of a sudden they flip-flopped to the exact opposite position and said, Oh no! It was a Christian document all along. What? Where'd you ever get the idea that it wasn't? Well, from you. Yeah. <laughs> Be from the religious right of that day made the exact opposite argument, and now they flipped completely around and said, "No, it was Christian all along." There are still some relatively intellectually honest Christian scholars. Gary North, Christian Reconstructionist, mm-hmm. um, wrote a uh, uh, as part of it was originally published as part of his book. You can find it separately on the internet now called Conspiracy in Philadelphia where he argues the exact opposite. He takes the old-fashioned religious right position, which is that the Constitution itself was a godless document and and broke the covenant with God that was established in the state constitutions and therefore was an evil thing. So 
um, you know, whatever works for them, you know, yeah, yeah. we'll take whatever position we want to get the way we want it. So, um, enough with that clip. Let's go on to the next one. Now, we're going to get to the issue here of, of disaster relief because one of the arguments that he made was only Christians help people after disasters. Play this clip. Our belief, for example, in universal compassion as a social value. There is no transaction of reason that dictates that we should care about somebody who's unrelated to us. However, here in the West, religious and non-religious people, we do. If there was a big famine in Haiti tomorrow, you'll notice that there would be a sort of yawning silence in most other cultures. The Chinese would ignore it, the Indians wouldn't care, the Muslim countries have plenty of oil money, but they would go about it as if nothing had happened. But here in the West, in America and Europe, the churches, Doctors Without Borders, the Salvation Army, the Red Cross, we're all animated, we all want to do something, we feel bad. But we're responding ultimately because we are the products of a specific history and a specific culture. Now, when he said that, my immediate thought was, what about Japan? <laughs> Japan is a very generous country with no Christian influence in their history whatsoever. Positively banned it. Right, uh, exactly. <laughs> so I did some research on this. Uh, throughout the 1990s, Japan led the world in disaster aid. Hmm. Um, they are still fifth in the world today, and the, the difference is that their economy has been in very bad shape for about a decade now, and so they haven't been able to give the kind of help they did. When Haiti had their earthquake two years ago, Japan sent $70 million, which, by the way, is double what the United States sent to Japan when they had their earthquake last year. So this idea that only Christians are compassionate or we're only compassionate because of the influence of Christianity is just nonsense. Uh, and so we wanted to get that out. Um, it's even it's even kind of strikingly I don't know if racist is the right term but uh but as far as none of these other areas care about or have compassion towards anybody right. okay so I don't know maybe maybe uh maybe the Islamic world didn't dump a lot of money into uh Haiti but one of the five pillars of Islam is it's charity charity right. to the poor right. and I mean that's not like a that's not like a you get to choose whether or not you're going to tithe to support the poor. That's that's right. you, you have are, to. Yes, right. it's an you have no choice. And, and the and, other thing is, the other thing that occurred to me was, go ask a gay person about that universal Christian compassion sometime, or a Native American. Or, Oops, right. most of them have been killed. Right. Never mind. Right. Like like where this universal Christian compassion idea doesn't seem to have operated very effectively throughout most of human history, you know. And that is just well, not they were say... handing out blankets to the Native Americans. Well, <laughs> sure, yes, of course, uh, with with smallpox on them. And, and this is not to say, look, Christians do a great deal of this. I mean, yes, they've set up hospitals yeah. with soup kitchens, and I almost said God bless them for it. But which the would have audacity been that every every uh, amount of charity or compassion is is somehow rooted in a, in, in the Christian heritage is is yeah. just it, it's absurd. absolute nonsense. Yeah, and 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 terrible. So, okay, next clip. Now we're going to talk about science, and and one of the arguments he made was essentially no Christianity, no science. So let's play this clip. When the atheist talks about science, which should not escape our attention, that what we call science is a Western phenomenon. It developed in Western civilization. 
and not in other cultures. Now, why is that? It developed because in the West, we have had this idea of the rational universe. And the rational universe, the idea that the universe operates according to laws, is an idea rooted both in Athens and in Jerusalem. But here again, what part does Jerusalem play in this? Right. There's a whole lot of influence from Athens. I mean, the Greeks, of course, were essentially our first scientists. But there's just there's so much history here that's being ignored, including, of course, the fact that Christianity was for centuries the primary impediment to the advancement of science. I do think the conflict thesis has been a little bit overblown yes. when it comes to history. I do think I do think Christianity and Christian academic institutions played a role in the development of of science. But again, it's a genetic fallacy to say then that the scientific method is somehow based in this in the idea of a transcendent rational mind that's in charge of the universe. It's not the case. You could see certain ideas developing historically uh, within a Christian framework, but that doesn't mean that its methods currently require any theistic propositions. And and even then, when you actually look at the development of ideas and, and philosophy, yes, you're right. Christianity was very much an impediment to a lot of ideas. I once did a critique on a gentleman named uh, David Hart who was trying to claim that – well, actually, here's a quote from him. He says, uh, what we mean by science today, its methods, its controls, its guiding principles came into existence for better, for worse, only within Christi Christendom under the hands of believing Christians. In fact, Western Europe surpassed every other civilization in its scientific accomplishments thanks to the medieval Christian university. What he does to support his claims here, he says, look at even in the dark ages, as secularists make him out to be, look at how many towering minds were present within these Christian institutions that really laid the groundwork for uh, modern understanding of science. So he'll cite people like William of Ockham, right, gives us Ockham's razor, uh, Thomas Redverdine, William Hatesbury. Uh, Jean Bourdain, these uh, great Christian thinkers throughout the Middle Ages who were la painstakingly laying down the foundations for future science to blossom during the Enlightenment. It was interesting that he had thousands of years he could pull from, and all the people that he chose were in, one, in a 115-year time span exactly at the time that the West was recovering several of these ancient Greek works. So long before Copernicus, long before Galileo and his fight with the, with the Pope, long before then you had Aristarchus of Samos, right, arguing for a heliocentric model of the solar system or calculating the relative size and distance from the sun. You had Euclid developing his axioms of geometry. You had Eratosthenes calculating the circumference of the earth and saying, hey, we might be able to circumnavigate this. You had people like Aristratus discovering motor and sensory nerves, the function of heart valves, speaking out against this ridiculous theory of humors and saying that the practice of bloodletting was barbaric. Now, all of those ideas were suppressed by the early Christian church 
and they had to be slowly, slowly recovered for millennia. And there's another thing. You can't immediately assume that just because a scholar in the Enlightenment, Renaissance, or in the Middle Ages, just because they were working for a Christian academy, that they were somehow Christian. William of Ockham is a great example. William of Ockham was peddling some very, very dangerous philosophy and would refute Aristotle, which was taken to be kind of almost a saint at that particular time, and would refute doctrines of the church, but would just tack on a little paragraph at the end of these, these treatises saying, and so these are the heresies we better watch out for. Or we, we happen to know, though, that through faith uh, in God that this is not the way the universe really was. A lot of these academics were actually challenging the church incognito because they didn't have the academic freedom to outright challenge the church's authority. And look what happened when they did. Right. Well, Giordano Bruno is a great example of what would happen if you did. Michael Servetus, you know, Galileo, obviously, even when they didn't directly challenge the church, even if they were simply doing science and it happened to disagree with what the church thought about the world at the time, um, then, you know, the, the results could be very, very serious for them. The mere fact that they had to disguise what they were doing speaks to the institutional power of the church as yeah. an impediment to scientific progress. Well, it, and, and I agree with you. It's overblown. Let's not – you can take this argument way too far right. into, well, you know, science and, and you know, Christianity was anti-science. Not entirely. Um, the fact is these things did develop in Christian universities because there weren't any other kind at the time. Right. right. You know, so – So I don't want to discredit Christianity's involvement in these discoveries no more than I want to discredit Islam and the, the – you know, many of the advances in science and astronomy and optics that went in, on in their civilization. Right. But if he's going to try to evoke Christianity as the foundation for this, only could have these ideas ever come from the West – well, he's got, he has to consider the contrary evidence, right. which is quite damning. In and case. that's something that we, we saw over and over and over in this debate is he would take this little kernel of a valid argument and then ignore all of the contrary evidence and blow it up into a big point, you know. Yeah. Uh, again, a walking logical fallacy, uh, Dinesh D'Souza is. Um, so – and, and, and of course, today, I mean, you look at the situation today, Christianity is still fighting science. <laughs> Where was the opposition to evolution immediately? Bishop Wilberforce, mm-hmm. the Church of England. Um, where is the almost exclusive opposition to the theory of evolution today based? Christianity. Almost no one else cares. Uh, almost no one else disputes it. You have some Muslims that do as well, of course. Um, but all of the opposition comes from the churches. Same thing to global warming. Clearly we and see... And what we're just starting to see the beginnings of now is neuroscience too. Right. It's it's just now being a blip on the radar of a lot of these Christians that, oh wait, our current understanding of the brain and how it operates doesn't leave much room for a soul either. Right. And those are going to be... Those are going to be theories. Big battles. Correct. Yes, those are going to be battles that are going to seriously, seriously haunt us in the decades to come. And our judicial system, oh my gosh, when they get a whiff of determinism, big and trouble. stem cell research, another great well, example. Right. I mean, where there are clearly are conflicts here. Um, and so clearly there's an awful lot more that D'Souza is sort of leaving out of his argument. Now, the last thing that we want to talk about here is this 
there started to be an argument during this debate over statues in the in the public square and sort of mm. the Capitol Rotunda, for example, it was an example used. And D'Souza was making this sort of equivalent argument. Well, you'd say that it's okay to put up a statue of Thomas Paine, but you wouldn't say it's okay to put up a statue of Jesus or Moses. And therefore, you're trying to rid the public square uh, of Christianity. Let's let's play this clip. When it comes to secular figures, we can debate whether we want them or not. We can debate their merits, and we can have that discussion, and we can decide on the basis of what we think is a democratic society to include them or not to include them. Susan's view is that religious figures just don't merit that kind of evaluation at all. It's not that we weigh Jesus and Tom Paine and go, you know, on the balance, we think that Tom Paine weighs heavier in the scales. He actually had a more impact. She knows that would be ridiculous to say, so she doesn't say it. But my point is, she doesn't even want Jesus to be considered. She thinks that he should be disqualified before his name even comes up because there's something in the Constitution, i.e. in Susan Jacoby's own preferences, that basically say that religious people are out and secular people are in. So this is a stunning corroboration of what I've been saying from the beginning of this debate, that there's a built-in double standard hedged with some so-called qual... Of course, I'm not saying that religious people, blah, 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 but the fact is that is what she is saying. And it all really just comes down to the fact that she doesn't like Moses and Jesus, and she's in love with Tom Paine. Our whole tradition prohibits supporting an establishment of religion. And if, if what you are saying is the only prohibition is against favoring one religion or another, I would ask you, what would happen in this society if, if we were forced to look at every religion? Do we think it's good to subsidize a religion, for instance, that prevents the use of modern medicine, say Christian science? Uh, all of these things arise once you start giving support to religion. It would require absolutely equal treatment. Well, first of all, that's simply not true. A good example would be that our campuses, our states, and our federal government, for example, have all kinds of multicultural programs that are aimed, for example, at taking into account the contributions of different minority and racial and ethnic groups. Now, you could right away say, wait a minute, if we start down this road, where do we stop? Then you find some eccentric group and say, well, we have to fund these crazy people too. And the fact of the matter is, no. You don't always have to go all the way down the slippery slope. That's why we have a democratic debate. We make judgments about where we decide to draw the line. The fact of the matter is, we can decide yes over here and no over there. Yes, we're going to have a statue of Moses, but no, we're going to have to say no, for example, to uh, Ali uh, or Buddha, uh, because their influence on American history has been much more uh, tangential. This is really interesting because this is essentially where I think he gives up the game. Where he yeah. yeah where he sort of walk, ducks into the punch because by arguing and, and this whole argument is over whether you could have a statue of Thomas Paine versus a statue of Jesus or Muhammad in the Capitol Rotunda for example and his and and Susan Jacoby is arguing look if you're going to provide that kind of support if you're going to essentially endorse mm -hmm. that for Christianity then under the principle of equality. Right. And under the principle of the government not supporting one religion over another, you would then have to allow statues of Buddha and Vishnu and Muhammad and right. L. Ron Hubbard and so yeah. forth. And, and if I can inject, there are cer certain times where this leads to contradictions. For example, like with the Ten Commandments monuments, if you have three sets of the Ten Commandments, 
I mean, Protestant Bibles and Catholic right. Bibles read different there sets of commandments. There are multiple different versions of the Ten You can't even, sometimes you can't even bring up a single religious monument without taking place in, in sectarian religious politics. What kind of statue of the Buddha are you going to make? Is it going to be the earth, earth-touching pose Buddha? Or is it going to be a Mahayana Buddha statue? Right. You know, is he going to be the fat laughing Buddha, which is actually a Chinese monk? Yeah, yeah. Or is it, you know, yeah. Is he a celestial bodhisattva? I think even Jacoby brought up, what about Moses? You know, you build a statue to Moses right next to your statue of the Ten Commandments. Well, one of those commandments is not to make a graven image of anything up in earth or in the <laughs> right. sky. And know. of course, you can't make a you can't make a statue of Mohammed. You know, that's well, completely yeah. forbidden in Islam. Yes. So, right. You, you, but the other thing is that his argument that, well, there is no slippery slope here because we'll just make democratic decisions yeah. on which ones to allow and which ones not to. Well, the, we already do that. And what's the result? The result is that only Christians, we have courthouse grounds and city hall, uh, you know, property and places like that all over the country that have hundreds of them that have 10 commandments monuments and no other. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is you have a de facto establishment of religion. You have the government clearly supporting and endorsing and promoting Christian ideas and nobody else. And in fact, there are many cases where where non-Christian groups have wanted to put their monuments on the courthouse grounds right next to the Ten Commandments or somewhere near there and been denied. And the Supreme Court two years ago said that was okay. That wasn't a violation of anything. So in practice... When he makes the argument that we don't have a slippery slope, essentially what he is arguing is it's okay that the government supports only my religion and nobody else's. That's how it operates right. in the real world, you know? And, and if he thinks majority rule should be the principle here, then why, why is the Establishment Clause in the Bill of Rights? I mean the entire point of the Bill of Rights is to, is to limit the powers of the government right. and to actually say – Look, the individual does have some rights over the majority no matter what. Right. No and matter what, the majority cannot decide right. they're going to establish a particular religion. And returning to an earlier point, remember his basis for all of this is Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Who takes the exact opposite position, that the government shouldn't be providing any support, rhetorical, non-coercive, nothing. Uh, for any religion precisely because of this problem. He argues that this is the problem of sex, that once you – sex, CDS, not X that, – <laughs> that once you – once you once the government gets involved in it, now you are sort of forced to support them all or you're forced – or the government is then endorsing one religion over another and that's what he sees as forbidden. So – and the other thing is and, – and, and we've only got a few minutes left but I do want to get into this. I, I asked the first question during the Q&A. And I was very curious because we got into the subject of Tom, Thomas Paine, and he called Thomas Paine this anti-Christian figure. And I found that really jarring because here he is basing everything on Thomas Jefferson. And then Thomas Paine is sort of the, the, the main example of the exact opposite. Thomas Jefferson is supporting Christian ideas as the basis of our republic, but Tom Paine, he's an evil anti-atheist and therefore has no place in this. But in fact, when you look at their writings on the subject, Jefferson and Paine agreed almost completely. Right. They both rejected the virgin birth and both rejected um, the, the resurrection and the atonement and all of the miracles and all of that. 
Um, they both had a very high opinion of Jesus as a human being, as an ethical philosopher. Uh, and that was D'Souza's argument. His only argument here when he tried to answer me was, well, I think Thomas Jefferson sort of thought more highly of Jesus um, than Thomas Paine did. In fact, that's not true. In chapter one of The Age of Reason, his book critiquing much of the Bible and Christian theology, he said, nothing that is here said can apply even with the most distant respect to the real character, disrespect to the real character of Jesus Christ. He was a virtuous and an amiable man. The morality that he preached and practiced was the most benevolent kind. And though similar systems of morality have been preached by Confucius and by some of the Greek philosophers many years before, by the Quakers since, and by many good men in all ages, it has not been exceeded by any. Virtually identical to what Thomas Jefferson said um, about Jesus as an ethical philosopher. So even the the primary attempt to get out of his contradiction was dishonest and yeah. unfactual. And so uh, as we wrap this up, uh, very clearly, like I said, I, I had low expectations. I went into it thinking that Dinesh D'Souza was very, very dishonest. I walked away from it thinking that Dinesh D'Souza is astonishingly, amazingly, overwhelmingly dishonest and that it's intentional. Yeah. He is far too intelligent and far too well-educated not to recognize the logical fallacies he's using, and he uses them anyway. And that's the disturbing thing to me. Well, that's and that's the disturbing thing about debates is often it's it's a match of wits. Who who can pull the best rhetoric right at the moment? Right. Uh, luckily, in the aftermath, though, when we start scrutinizing these things, uh, it's easy to show that D'Souza's argument falls apart. Right. And that's exactly why we're doing this is because we want to take these claims one at a time and look at them in some detail that maybe is not allowed in a debate where you have a limited period of time. And we've done this for almost two hours now. Yeah. Um, and we could we could probably go on for another hour if we wanted to. Um, there, there is even more to be said, but, but this is a good example, I think. Well, I don't know if my life has been enriched, but I certainly <laughs> feel like there's a lot off my chest now. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> was, You're not seething quite the way you were after it, the debate. It was a, it was a joy to debunk D'Souza with you, Ed. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's been a real pleasure uh, having you back on the show, and I'm sure at some point we'll have you back again. Uh, but Jeremy, thanks so much for being here. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. 